Last Sunday, we began uh, the first of a two-part little mini-series in the Beatitudes in Luke's Gospel. Um, And these Beatitudes, they describe the qualities that make up the type of person who is blessed by Jesus. I'm going to say this over and over again. I said it last week to you, but get this in our heads. The Beatitudes are not things that we're supposed to do in order for Jesus to bless us. The Beatitudes are the types of qualities that a person develops when Jesus gets hold of their life. Luke's go- or Mark, uh, Matthew's gospel differs from Luke's in his account of the Beatitudes, but the general thrust is the same, whereas Matthew records eight Beatitudes, Luke has four plus four woes that are coupled with these four Beatitudes. And so last week we covered the first two. And this evening, we are going to focus on the second two Beatitudes and woes. Now, I just have a simple question. Who needs good news this evening? I need good news. Yeah, everyone? Okay, yep. I need to see nods. I see some hands. Uh, I have some good news for us. I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able while we read the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to look at chapter 6, verses 20 through 26. Talking about Jesus now, it says, And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Lord, once again, two weeks in a row now, we've come to this very challenging passage. And Lord, defensively, we want to maybe shut off and not listen to what you have to say. Because it goes against our sensibilities. Holy Spirit, by your power, would you please open your word to me and to this church, that we could hear what it is you're trying to say to us. And we also pray for the courage to obey what it is you're trying to say. We give you thanks in advance for your servant Luke, who saw fit to write down these words and preserve them for us. Help us not to squander this opportunity to hear you, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I had you raise your hands if you wanted to hear good news, and then I read something like that. <laughs> hey, I thought, I thought this was going to be good news. Uh, this passage sounds hard and convicting and confusing. Fair enough. I just want to make a deal at the very beginning here. Uh, on your end, what I'm going to ask of you is that you, just through the length of this sermon, 
which I promise won't be too long, um, I, I want you to choose to believe that what Jesus is saying is good news. Just suspend your judgment for a moment and choose to believe that what Jesus is saying is good news. And my end of the bargain will be to help show you that that belief was warranted. Deal? And then you can believe whatever you want afterwards. So before we dig into whether or not this passage is good news, let's deal with whether or not this passage makes any sense. I like to start there. So for example, does it make any sense that Jesus would say, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are those who weep, blessed are those who are hated, ostracized, and persecuted? Does it make sense that the rich and well-fed would draw a reaction of woe? Or that Jesus would say, woe to those who laugh and to those who are well-liked. Does that make sense? Well, it depends on the type of passage we're reading. You see, in, in wisdom literature, like Proverbs in the Old Testament, like Ecclesiastes, um, uh, and in many of the Psalms, we're accustomed to reading about wealth as being a blessing uh, and poverty of being a curse, like for laziness and things like that. We read that a person who is blessed by God will receive the fruit of their labor. And that the blessed person rejoices and is happy and laughs while the sinful person mourns and is in woe. The righteous person is, is well and, and has the favor of uh, the community. They're well-liked. While the evil person in the Proverbs and the wisdom literature is shunned and ostracized. Wisdom literature tells us the general way that things work. Maybe even, uh, another way to put that is, uh, the way that things ought to work in the world. Wisdom literature does not include promises or rules of how God will work in your personal life if you do X, Y, and Z. They're generalities and they're principles. So if Jesus' words in these Beatitudes are wisdom teachings or proverbs, they would be at best contradictory to the rest of scripture and extremely confusing. By the way, one of the ways that people get uh, strange doctrines like prosperity gospel and health and wealth types teaching is by reading the proverbs as promises. That gets us into trouble. But the, the Beatitudes in Luke and Matthew, they are not wisdom literature. They're not proverbs, they're not general rules, they're not rules at all, which, by the way, if you think about it, is good news by itself, so I just kind of gave you that, but uh, they're, they're not rules to follow. And one of the main clues that we know that is because of the woes attached to Luke's Beatitudes. Woes are common, not in wisdom literature, but in prophetic literature. The prophetic tradition, think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Habakkuk, Malachi, among others. Um, these, this tradition Basically, what it serves to do is holds up a mirror to society, holds up a mirror to the human heart, and its concern is with love and with motive of the heart and with devotion to God. So the prophets don't take on the objects of money. They don't call money good or bad or food good or bad or being full good or bad or happiness or popularity being good or bad. What the prophets do is they say, how are you using those things? How are you using wealth and a big dinner table that's full every night while your neighbors might be starving? How, what is your heart behind how you use those things? That's what the prophets are on about. 
And when we don't use leverage, when we don't leverage those things like our good name in the community uh, or, or like our wealth or, or those types of things, when we don't leverage them for God's glory and neighbor's good, then the prophets speak words of woe. You could say, whoa, man. Never mind. All right. In a similar way, the prophets taught that the poor were blessed not because they're poor materially, but because they're dependent on God. And while the rich found their comforts in worldly things, the poor were righteous and devoted to God. In the prophetic literature, that's how they're spoken of. So here are two realities that are going to help us unpack these Beatitudes moving forward. First, the Beatitudes are from the stream of prophetic literature. If they convict, they are meant to convict only to draw us back to God. Okay? If they describe you, if you're feeling poor, hungry, ostracized, you're blessed. Jesus is saying, turn to him, we bless you. Second, Jesus is not looking for people who are trying to be like those listed in the Beatitudes. He's not like, just look at his ministry. He didn't come in and say, I only want to find a certain type of person. Instead, what he did is he found people who then would trust him. And when they began to trust him, well, then they realized that they're poor in spirit. I mentioned last week, Zacchaeus, this rich tax collector. He wasn't poor. He wasn't mourning. He wasn't ostracized. Well, he was kind of by some people, but it wasn't for the sake of the Son of Man. He had it, like in the world's eyes, Zacchaeus had it made. He was a made man. Jesus sought him out. Zacchaeus realized his sinfulness, repented, and then gave away. He realized he was poor on the inside and hungry on the inside. And he began to weep over his sinful behavior towards people. And he gave back a portion of what he had. That's what we're on about. Jesus is promising to work in and through you the definition of blessed. In 1759, a man named William Wilberforce was born in Hull, England. He was wealthy and extremely liked. He lacked very little earthly pleasure that I could think of. He received his education at Cambridge, and even though he wasn't uh, necessarily, uh, I think he was super smart, he just wasn't into academics at that time. And so what he would, but what he was noted for is being uh, a conversationalist, like magnetic personality. In fact, one historian records his roommate saying like, man, I'm trying to like get my studies done and I'd be up all night talking to Wilberforce because he's so intriguing and I would never get my homework done. I mean, this is the kind of personality that he had, this charisma and charm. Wilberforce wanted to be a politician and he had the money, he had the charisma, he had the family name and in 1780, he was elected to parliament in England. He seemingly had it all. Popularity, social connection, wealth, uh, a full table of food. Um, but on the inside, he was beginning to struggle. At 21 years old, he had already met his goal of becoming elected to parliament. But he didn't have a purpose. A and he once reflected that in those first few years of parliament, he didn't feel like he did anything of value. In fact, he, he, he confessed that the only value he thought he brought to Parliament was just being like a really fun guy that everyone wanted to hang out with, everybody wanted to hang out with at, at social settings, and, and he would drink heavy, and he would stay up late, and he was the life of the party. 
As the story goes, he was attending Easter worship in 1786, when during one of the worship songs, hum, humbling to the preacher, it wasn't during the sermon, he experienced a spiritual rebirth. And the fact is, is that Jesus gripped Wilberforce's heart while he was rich, well-fed, well-liked, and full of laughter. Jesus can save us from that which can bring us woe. That's good news. Upon his rebirth, Wilberforce realized his own poverty and his own hunger, not of riches and food, but of Jesus and his way. And he came to see that his, his money and charisma and his network of relationships were not there just to serve his own purposes in the world, but they were to be used to, to serve Jesus and to bless other people. And in particular, William Wilberforce was the man Jesus worked in and through to abolish slavery in the British Empire. We're going to come back to Wilberforce in a few moments. But for now... Since we've had a bit of a review from last week and, a, and an introduction uh, this week to the concept of Jesus' Beatitudes, I want us to, to dive into the text for this week. The last two Beatitudes, the ones we're looking at right now, uh, and a, their accompanying woes, we'll take them in pairs. So let's begin with this. Blessed are you when you weep now, for you'll laugh. Obviously, that sounds like a complete paradox. What kind of God uh, would call it blessed when you're weeping? Is this kind of, some kind of sick joke? And as soon as we look at the rest of Scripture, we realize that we must be missing something because Jesus, who is fullness of God in the flesh, was consistently near the brokenhearted. And not only near, but he was often solving the problems of the broken heart. You know, with the, the people who were diseased, he was healing them. With those who were oppressed demonically, he was casting out demons. He once was just passing through town, and he sees a funeral procession, and he notices this mother just weeping and wailing. Her only child was dead, dead, like on the way to the funeral procession. And Jesus, out of compassion, raises this child up from the dead. I mean, Jesus wasn't pro-weeping as if it was some blessed state, right? So what are we missing? What did he mean if he's saying, blessed are those who weep? I think it would be helpful to take this question from another angle. So let's begin with the equally confusing woe. Woe to those who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. On the surface, I'm in serious trouble. I love to laugh, and I'm the father of Samara, which means I laugh every single day. Please don't ask her what hot cross buns mean right now. Oh my gosh, she's <laughs> pulling her pants down all the time. But here's why reminding ourselves that Jesus is preaching out of the prophetic tradition in the Beatitudes matters. In all the New Testament, the word laughter is used two times, and they're both in this passage. Okay? But in the Hebrew scriptures, they're translated into Greek called the Septuagint. They're used numerous times, the word laughter. And you know how it's usually used is um, by someone who is scoffing at the righteous or laughing at the, um, the oppressed and saying, ha ha, look at me, ha ha, look at them. Daryl Bach, an Old Testament scholar, writes, levity or harmless humor is not in view here. In the Septuagint, laughter is often tied to laughter that is boastful, self-satisfied, condescending, or rejoicing in the harm that others experience. 
It can also be used to describe a person who is foolish because they laugh thinking that they're getting away with evil in the present when in fact God will judge them. Okay? So in that sense then, laughter is living as though God and his ways don't bear any weight in the world. And the opposite, uh, of course, is living with the reality that, it, that this is God's world, that he created it, that he loves it, that he calls us to rule it in wisdom and in likeness of his character. So those who are blessed mourners do so for at least two reasons. First, they mourn, or, or I might say we mourn, because we realize that my sin, your sin, our sin is much of the problem in the world that our corrupt hearts are bent towards disobedience and selfishness and independence from God. They realize, we realize that we're poor, and therefore we are blessed because we begin to seek hard after God, like I am at the end of my ability. I am the cause of most of my own issues when I'm honest with myself. And that makes me very desperate for someone else outside of myself who, who can help me. And second, the blessed mourners uh, are, are blessed because they realize that the world is broken. We come to know uh, our God is creator and Lord, and we come to see how at odds with him our world is become. And it's important to remember that when the Bible talks about the world, it's not talking about the earth. Those are two different words. Uh, gain is the Greek word for earth, like the planet. Um, and the word for earth in the Bible refers to, like, the creation, the mountains and, and the oceans and, and the, the land and the plants and the animals and human beings who are God's image bearers. And God says that the gain, the planet, the creation, you are created good. He created all things and said it's very good. But the word for world in Greek, cosmos, is typically referring to human society organized around anything else but God. That's what the world means. And so it's humanity gone astray. It's a sin-affected world. And those who've begun to follow Jesus see the world through his eyes. And we see what it can be like and what it should be like and how far, how far short it really falls. And we know that death, for example, is not God's best, and, and that our governments, even the best forms of those governments, are flawed through and through, and our, our economic systems and our social constructs, even the best versions of those, are seriously lacking, and a follower of Jesus sees those things and mourns about them from time to time. Jesus mourned the death of other people. He was frustrated with flawed systems of government and religion. He broke down racial and social and gender barriers. And his disciples mourn in the face of these injustices as well. And he says, take heart, disciples of mine. You're blessed. You're blessed when you mourn about these things. I will make them right. William Wilberforce had a spiritual transformation and began to follow Jesus. He mourned about how his life had become nothing more than social politicking and was self-serving. How his social drinking was so heavy, it was to the point where it clouded his judgment. And so, when he had his transformation, he vowed to quit drinking and only employ his influence, his vast social network and his charisma for godly causes. And the things he mourned about most 
were two, slavery in the British Empire and the urban poor in London and um, um, Birmingham and uh, like Manchester area. He, he just, it broke his heart to see, uh, think Oliver Twist and the chimney sweeps. He actually had a, a, a ministry to reach out to, to chimney sweeps. He actually started 69 uh, nonprofit philanthropic organizations during his tenure. His mourning made him realize his hunger and poverty for Jesus, and he found himself blessed by his great need for Jesus in such a way that he just changed his life from self-seeking political interest to working tirelessly to abolish slavery. In addition, he gave one quarter of his annual salary from parliament to uh, charitable organizations in England. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will laugh in the end. Not in a gloating way, but in a pure joy after living a life that matters. The fourth and final beatitude, let's just be honest, it's challenging to hear. Blessed are you when people ostracize you, hate you, insult you, and scorn your name, basically drag your name through the mud, for the sake of the Son of Man. It gets crazier. It says, be glad. In that day, and and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Oh, and then it gets better. Uh, Woe to you when people speak well of you. I like it when people speak well of me. I like it when people like me. Woe to you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in that way. So again, it seems contradictory to the rest of Scripture. Paul writes in several different places in his letter something to the effect of live a quiet life so that you gain the favor of other people. And there's a sense that that he and we want others to think well of us in the world, to to have clout. Like, you don't want to be some wacko Christian that everybody hates. Like, you want to actually have, um, reflect Christ to people, and that should be an attractive thing, right? We want to be respected in our vocations. We pray for different vocations every month here. And and so what's the big deal here? What is is Jesus talking about in these Beatitudes? Uh, The deal is, in short, is that when we follow Jesus who claims kingship over all creation without equal, you're going to run into resistance. You know how I'm fond of the satirical Babylon Bee. This one is so good. Here's the headline. Man, unsure if he's persecuted because he's a Christian or because he's a massive jerk. Atlanta, Georgia. After getting into yet another argument on Facebook Monday morning, local believer Hank Reichert found himself blocked by several of his friends and family members. But the 32-year-old Christian was still unable to figure out if this new wave of persecution was because of his firm faith in Jesus or because the fact that he's a total jerkwad, sources confirmed. I want to say it's because I believe in Jesus, but I'm also super obnoxious. Um, It could be for either reason. I'm just not sure which one. This isn't the first time the totally obnoxious follower of Jesus has found himself in this situation. According to Rickert, he's constantly suffering persecution and exclusion in the workplace, among his family members, and even in the church. And he's never entirely certain if it's his reprehensible personality or his love for Jesus that's the cause. He quote, I'm always getting asked to leave restaurants and grocery stores for loudly arguing with people. I guess it's just my cross to bear in a culture that's diametrically opposed to the teachings of Jesus. End quote. 
Isn't that good? You know what? Persecution is not the government taking down a Christmas tree from the state capitol or the checker at the grocery store saying happy holidays. And living for the Son of Man isn't necessarily replying Merry Christmas to the person who just said happy holidays. Persecution is the social oppression, economic exclusion, and verbal and physical violence against you when you're seeking to reflect Jesus in the world that is opposed to Jesus. Again, Wilberforce is a great example. When he first started working to abolish slavery, he had a youthful naivete about him. He just knew deep down that it was the right thing to do. It was the Jesus thing to do. And he was convinced that he, through his charisma, could convince people that slavery should be abolished. In 1789, he introduced 12 separate resolutions to begin to chip away at the slave trade. Each one of those 12 was systematically tossed out, not because of his lack of ability as a lawmaker, but for technicalities that were stretched to the absurd by people who were invested economically and socially in the slave trade. Wilberforce introduced bills in 1797, 1798, 1799, 1804, and 1805, and they were all rejected. One historian writes, when it became clear that Wilberforce was not going to let the issue die, pro-slavery forces began to target him. He was vilified. Opponents spoke of the damnable doctrine of Wilberforce and his hypocritical allies. The opposition became so fierce, one friend feared that one day he would read about Wilberforce's being broiled and hated by, um, he was so hated by those in the slave trade. William Wilberforce was well-liked by the powers that be until those powers came into conflict with the way of the Son of Man, with Jesus. And when Wilberforce chose the way of Jesus, he became an enemy of the enemies of Jesus. He was hated. He was ostracized. He was insulted. He had his name scorned, just like the Beatitude. And in 1807, Parliament abolished the slave trade throughout the British Empire. Blessed, when God works in and through you. Blessed are those who weep now, for they will laugh. Blessed are those who are persecuted. They are in the company of prophets, and that is very good company indeed. Are the Beatitudes good news? Not if we aren't willing to look at the world differently. Jesus turns the world upside down, and maybe a better way to say it is he turns it right side up, like it's kind of upside down right now. How is this good news? Because Jesus is the one who reaches out. He's the one who says to to us, come and follow me. He doesn't wait for you to bear beatitude fruit. He knows that that's impossible. He comes to us, and then we, when we trust him, he begins to bear that fruit in us. He says, come and follow me, and I will show you how to be blessed. Being blessed isn't avoiding our sin. It's not avoiding the pain in the world. It's being made new by Jesus and engaging in the world in the midst of poverty and hunger and sadness and persecution. Christians are not designed by God to put our heads in the sand and pretend nothing's going on and just wait for something to happen. 
okay? He transforms us and sends us out. And it's hard work because you begin to come to the end of your rope. You begin to realize your poverty and your hunger and you begin to mourn over the state of the world and you will run into times when you have to choose and one way the right way might lead will probably lead to persecution or some kind of, of challenge. Like we learned from the life of Wilberforce, Jesus will take the emptiness that the world offers and he'll fill you up with purpose and a life worth living. And like Jesus, we're going to enter hardship, but you can be part of Jesus' plan for the church, which is to be a blessing to the world and to bring people the good news of Jesus. And that's why I think this is good news. Let's pray. Lord, as we hear all of this stuff, even as we look to a life like Wilberforce, God, um, we're tempted to say that that's great for someone else. But we still maybe don't quite believe that coming to grips with our own internal poverty and, and our hunger for you. And Lord, we don't like to be a people who, who mourn And we certainly don't like to ruffle feathers in our, in our culture. But Lord, I know there's others sitting here today who can't help but mourn for the world and whose hearts are broken and some are feeling without hope in the world. And I pray, God, that these these beatitudes, this good news, Lord, would reach those who are mourning right now. And not necessarily take it away, but that you would give hope where there is not hope. And that you would affirm deep in our hearts that you weep over so much in our world as well. And that one day you'll make it right. And that one day those who mourn over the things that you mourn over will be able to laugh with you in your presence in a joyous way as we see things come uh, to be summed up in Christ. And I pray for those who are here today who have uh, experienced or are experiencing um, whatever level of persecution by taking a path of following you, Jesus. And I pray for courage and hope and the knowledge that they're in good company. Lord, help us in our lives to, uh, to listen to where you're leading us, God. And if we don't have any reason to be persecuted, <laughs> Would you show us where we are compromising too much? I'm thankful, Lord, creator of heaven and earth, king of the universe, savior and Lord. I'm thankful that you are good. And not only in a platonic, good, untouchable kind of way, but in a gracious way gracious way coming to reach out to us where we're at 
lifting our eyes to the horizon, showing us a life that can be better, more meaningful, yes, more challenging, but full and good. And I pray that you would give us the heart and the courage to pursue that life that you have for us, Lord, and not to settle for playing at life or to playing church. Help us, Lord. Amen.